Today on the podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing Mr. Paul Levinson. Now, if you notice throughout the podcast today that I sound a little bit geeky or giddy, it's because I'm really, really excited about this interview. And as we dig into this and I start reading Paul's bio and his background, I think you'll understand why. Paul was born on March 25th, 1947, which makes him 75 years young. He's an American author. He's a singer and a songwriter. He's a professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University in New York City. His novels, short fiction, and nonfiction works have been translated into 16 languages. He's frequently quoted in the news with articles, and he appears as a guest commentator on major news outlets. He's also, again, as I mentioned, a songwriter, a singer, and a record producer. A little bit about his educational background. He attended the City College of New York in the 1960s and received a bachelor's in journalism from New York University in 1975, a master's degree in media studies from the New School in 1976, and a PhD from New York University in Media Ecology in 1979. His doctoral dissertation was Human Replay, A Theory of Evolution of Media, 1979. He was mentored by the late, great Neil Postman, and we're going to talk about, he personally knew Marshall McLuhan. Let me just give you some titles of the courses that he teaches and or has taught in the past, which will give you a good background for what we're going to talk about today. So some examples of the courses he's taught is freedom of expression, politics and new media, television and new media, targeted writing, writing workshop, communication and technology, propaganda and persuasion, interactive media, introduction to communication and media studies, digital media, and public responsibility. And my favorite, Paul, before we jump into this, is that you have an IMDb page, which is where people appear on movies and videos and have, have credits on movies and television and, and documentaries. And you have a cameo interview on Ancient Aliens. <laughs> so, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be here. By the way, that interview, I live in the New York area. That's where Fordham University is. But in those days, I mean, it's a long time ago in terms of now we have Zoom and it's very easy to do interviews. But I guess this interview was back in 2011 or something, a little before that. So I had to drive up to Boston for that interview. And the whole interview, like, it came from outer space. I had to meet my interviewer in a hotel room. And it was like all set up like a slightly darkened room. I have expected someone from Alpha Centauri to come by and introduce him or herself. That's fascinating. Well, I am in awe of your life because I don't really know how to figure you out or to, you don't fit in any kind of box because you're this sci-fi writer, but you also are a professor of media you are a singer-songwriter. You've worked with some very big names back in the day, in the 60s, 70s. You've written songs for other artists. And you love to, to write about time travel and think about those things. So 
Tell me, let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about young Paul growing up. What kind of home did you grow up in? What was your early life like? It was very good. I grew up in the Bronx. My father was an attorney, and he taught me the value of talking and thinking clearly. <laughs> and my mother was a housewife, but a you know devoted housewife. And you know they they took good care of me. I have a younger sister. And the truth is they encouraged me in a way that maybe some people now regret. I'm certainly happy about it. But anything that I wanted to do, you know, they always say, well, try it, you know, and see how it goes. You know, years later, I read that Robert Heinlein, one of my favorite science fiction authors, my all-time favorite is Isaac Asimov. But it was Robert Heinlein who said, you know, insects can only do one thing very well. We're not insects. We mm. should be able to do a lot of things well. And, you know, they used to call people like that the sexist term Renaissance men. But the truth is, I think there are a lot of women and men walking around today who could probably do much more than they're doing. And when I grew up, I was especially touched as too weak a word because it was such a profound influence. I was swept up with two aspects of popular culture. So now we're talking about when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. One was rock and roll music. This is the late 50s going into the early 60s. And the other was science fiction. And maybe because of my parents' encouragement, but maybe I shouldn't blame them. This was probably just came from me. When I really love something in popular culture, I quite naturally not only want to listen to it and read it and see it on the screen, I, I quite naturally segue into seeing if I can create it myself. And I guess it's a good thing that I never was that interested in atomic energy. Otherwise, <laughs> God knows I probably would have blown up the world already. <laughs> but back in high school, well, actually back in grade school, that's when I wrote my first story. It was, it was about some interstellar travelers that came to Earth. It wasn't until high school that I began writing music. You can search now on Spotify or Apple Music, wherever, for a song called The Pork at Night. Not the most brilliant lyric in the world. I wrote the lyrics. My friend Paul Gorman wrote the music, and his father took us into the recording studio when we were both about 16 years old, and we actually recorded that demo. And you can hear me singing that song. But as the 60s went on, I became even more interested in doing music. And, you know, one thing led to another. I, I always also had a great interest in philosophy. I also had a great interest in media. I remember thinking early on and even talking to my friends about it, when you see someone talking about something on the news, how do you know that it's true, right? Wow. You haven't experienced it firsthand. And so little did I know that years later, we'd have Fox News and that was in front <laughs> It's professional wrestling, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, I've always been eager to take on new challenges, intellectual challenges, whatever. My father wanted me to become a lawyer, and I did disappoint him, but he was happy enough that I got, you know, my PhD. 
The reason I didn't become a lawyer was, frankly, I just didn't want to sit around all day reading law books and memorizing case law. I wanted to explore things more and get into the nitty-gritty of some of these deep philosophic issues. Well, what strikes me and what I've been thinking a lot about, Paul, and one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you is there's this idea that intellectualism, business, all the things that we think are, are very, you know, left brain, as you would say, actually require a lot of creativity. It requires a lot of cre creative thinking. And you're someone that strikes me that really leans into your creativity in order to think deeper and differently about these topics that, that you've been so prolific about. How, how many books total have you written over the years? Well, okay. If we define a book as a full-fledged book, let's say at least 150 to 200 pages, because I do have published in book form things that are 70, 75 pages, but let's take those out of the picture. I've written 16 different books. About half of them are science fiction novels. The other half are explorations in media theory. And as happy and as proud as I am about that, what makes me even happier, because my goal is to confuse as many people in the world, <laughs> is that they've been translated into all those languages. I mean, that's amazing to yes. me. Yes. You know, amazing. when I think about it, and by the way, that's a fascinating topic in and of itself because my books have been translated into Chinese. In fact, for some reason, China and Poland are the two countries in that order that have the most amount of my translations. I can't read a word of Polish and I can't read a word of Chinese. So God knows what the translators did with my work, you know, I, I, and, and especially when it comes to nonfiction. So to some extent, it's almost an act of faith. You know, you're hoping that the translator is getting what you are saying. But, but it makes me very happy to think there are people all over the world who are able to read my work. I'm therefore communicating with them. And I really do try to look at this planet as a global community, which is sometimes easier than at other times. But I do believe that, you know, we as a species, we've done some very damaging things to our planet, but we've done some very good things to our planet. And another one of my great interests is getting off this planet, mm. getting out into the cosmos, because I think we'll never fully understand who we are, what our place is in this universe from just our vantage point down here on Earth, because there's a huge universe out there, and we need to get out there and see it and feel it and touch it. Well, yeah, I'm feeling like there's a lot of other people who believe in the same thing, and we're certainly, it, it appears that we're making steps in that, that direction. So maybe maybe you'll take that, that rocket trip before too long. To tell me what you see as the connection between some of these things. You're You're a person who thinks out into the cosmos, but you're also a person who thinks internally into the internal cosmos too. What, what's the connection between those that in your life as you've lived and explored science fiction and, and thought about those things and, and travel into the cosmos, but also thought deeply 
about what's going on in, in our own brains and hearts and minds and philosophy and the effects of, of media. What are the dots that you have connected in that world? First of all, and most primarily, when I write a song, you know, the music just comes to me and so do the lyrics. I might refine them over a period of time, but I don't do research before I write a song. And I realized early on that that's the way I approach everything I write. All of my prose, whether it's fiction, science fiction, or even nonfiction, people sometimes get surprised and even upset about that. But when I sit down and write, I've already read an enormous amount about it, not having written anything or much about it, and that's what I draw upon. And that's the same way I teach. You know, I'll tell you a true story that I've often told people. I won't mention the name of the conference, but years ago I was invited to a conference. I will say it was in the Midwest. I was paid a lot of money to give a talk. It was a keynote address. I never write a word of anything before I talk. Hmm. And so I went to the conference. It was an hour-long talk. I had it all thought out in my head. Some of it I didn't have thought out in my head. Some of it I knew would come to me as I was talking. But when I was introduced, getting not quite as good an introduction as you just gave me, <laughs> but a good introduction, I realized, you know, if I just walk up there to the stage, and I think like there were 300 people in the audience, and I just walk up empty-handed, people are going to wonder, you know, did this guy prepare? So I saw there was a table. It was just, a, you know, sheaves of like empty, you know, you know I guess flyers. So I picked up a whole bunch of them, turned them upside down so nobody could see what they were. And when I was called up to speak, after I was introduced, I went up and I put the, the, the sheaf of papers in front of me so people thought I had prepared a paper. And after my talk, one of the people who asked me a question said, my God, you're an incredible speaker. You didn't look at your written remarks. <laughs> no. but, but that's the connectivity. Right. But, you know, it, it, to me, writing a song, writing a lyric is is very similar to, if not almost identical, to writing any kind of prose. And and when we're talking about nonfiction and the serious books that I've written, yeah, there is a process after I finish writing where I have to go out and make sure I have all the references right and the footnotes and all of this and that. That's something you don't have to do in music. But, but the core of my written material is, comes from the same part of my brain and soul as my music comes from. And then you can throw in my teaching, you know, as well. I, I enjoy talking. By the way, I love teaching in person, but I also love teaching through Zoom. You know, a lot of my colleagues during the COVID pandemic were saying, oh, my God, this has destroyed education. No, every communications medium has its advantages, has strengths and weaknesses. And actually, one of the strengths of teaching through Zoom, you know who each student is instantly because their names are there. When you're teaching in person, it takes you classes know, to, to learn who they are. So they, they each have their advantages. I'll also add here that apropos of Marshall McLuhan, he used to love to talk about and write about something he called acoustic space. And by that, he was distinguishing between the way sound 
approaches us from a 360-degree surround to the way we see where you have to be looking right at it and focusing on that one thing. You don't see at all what's in the back of your head, and you can barely see what's in the peripheral. And so McLuhan thought that acoustic space was the most profound part of human communication and that it's often overlooked. And people who emphasize detail and, you know, explicit information, they are in effect hung up on visual space and they don't let their minds go into the acoustic world. I realized at some point that my love for songs and harmony and music and how that tied directly into my love of science fiction and writing was really an exploration of what McLuhan would say was acoustic space. That's really, that's really a great perspective. I, it reminds me of an interview I heard recently with the cellist Yo-Yo Ma, and he was talking about during COVID, during the pandemic, he and a, a, another and got together and out of their own desire to, to spread comfort and encouragement, they did these compositions and they would play and people could watch them and connect on Zoom. And they, it, it was just amazing people's responses. And he said something on that interview that kind of ties in with what you're saying. He's like, he said, what sound is, it's actually vibrations that move the, the hairs in your ears that then create. And he said, I can, I can literally physically reach out and touch people through this medium. I can move the hairs in their ears and they don't realize it, but something happens inside of them through this. And I'd never had put it in that context like that, that that was his way of saying, I can literally touch people without being present with them through that acoustic space. I thought that was a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah, I, I agree. It is a beautiful way of saying it. And that's absolutely right. And McLuhan was very interested in that too. And as you've just said, the perception of sound is a physiological process where your body it is indeed literally responding to sound waves that hit your eardrums and, and hit your overall body. And, you know, not this, that there's anything wrong with vision. I mean, there's an enormous amount of joy and wonder that comes through sight as well, but it's a much more detached process. One of the other things that I explored this in my doctoral dissertation, Human Replay, a Theory of the Evolution of Media, but one of the other things that shows the profundity of sound is think about the fact that we have eyelids, that it gets dark every night, but we have no earlids, and there's always sound in the environment. Now, that's a good survival mechanism because if we're sleeping in the wild someplace, our eyes might be closed, but it's good if our ears hear some kind of lion or tiger prowling nearby. So... Right there, you have an example of how deeply connected we are to sound. That, that, and that's why we have alarm clocks. Sound wakes us up in the morning. And you, you can just go on and on with this. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing. It, it's now thought for sure that babies hear voices when they're inside the womb. Mm. 
And and so, yeah, they're comforted by the heartbeat. They're comforted by, you know, warmth. But it's now thought that babies after they're born recognize their mother and their father's voices because they've been hearing for a few months. Yeah, that that's amazing. Before we jump into some of the current opinions, I, I, I'm dying to get your input and thoughts on some things that are going on in the world. And I want to talk about Digital McLuhan, the book you wrote that explored the relevance of Marshall McLuhan's ideas in the digital age. But, but, but before we go to that, to those listeners who may not be familiar, you have your doctorate in media ecology. What, what is that? How would you define it? Well, Neil Postman, who basically founded the program, but wasn't the first person to say that term, that indeed was Marshall McLuhan, always took great pains to say, we don't have that much to do, or we're not at all, you know, looking at the climate, you know. So what both McLuhan and Postman meant by ecology, it's really a metaphoric connection to climate studies, and, and looking at the earth. And when you look at the earth and when you consider the climate, you consider as many factors as you can that, that are part of the environment. It matters where is there snow, where is there water, how is the wind blowing, where are there forests, where are there deserts, et cetera, et cetera. And to understand this world in which we live, you need to take all those into account. Well, both McLuhan and Postman thought and both of them taught that to understand the impact of media, you need to consider the relationship of one medium to another. You need to consider how they operate in concert. So my dissertation, Human Replay, A Theory of the Evolution of Media, actually back then, and I still use it, I developed a theory of media evolution, and I call it anthropotropic media evolution. Anthropo meaning human, tropic meaning towards. And the overall pattern that I noticed and explored was as media develop, they get increasingly more like human communication. With mm -hmm. one exception, they can and indeed are deliberately developed to far exceed the range of our naked senses. Hmm. And so writing was at first developed because that's the only way you could get ideas across a long distance. You know, the alternative was speaking. But when you were writing something, you lost everything else in that natural environment. And so when I was writing that in, in the late 1970s, it was immediately unsurprising to me that we eventually took hundreds of years, even, you, you know, millennia, until we develop ways that we could speak over long distance, see over long distance, but all of those were attempting to reclaim natural modes of communication that had been sacrificed in order to first communicate long distance across both space and time. That's not long distance, that's endurance. But in all of those cases, the common factor, and this is the essence of media ecology, is that you can't understand television without understanding radio and motion pictures. And you can't understand radio once television comes along 
without understanding television. I, a late great disc jockey at WFUV Radio, and I wrote a short story about him. I admired him so much I knew him, Pete Fornatel. And I wrote an alternate history story about he accidentally travels into an alternate world in which the Beatles are still together and John Lennon is alive in the 1990s. But I first came to know Pete Fornatel when I was a professor shortly after I got my doctoral dissertation done at NYU. I was a professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University, and I was teaching a course in media. And I came across a book called Radio in an Age of Television. And that immediately struck me. That's a smart book, because that author understands that you can't just look at radio. You have to look at radio if you're talking about radio in the 1980s with this behemoth television. And that's why the same thing is true today. You, you can't really understand Twitter without knowing that television is one of Twitter's biggest boosters. They're constantly, you know, people are saying, oh, my God, politics have become completely social media Twitter. That may be true to some extent, but it's television's fault to some extent because they, they constantly are, as part of their stories, quoting tweets. Right, so right. that book, Radio in an Age of Television, was written by Pete Fornatel. So he is someone who understood th that complex ecology of media. And that's the essence of media ecology. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's jump to your book, if you don't mind, Digital McLuhan. And I've talked about McLuhan on, on the podcast. So people have a little bit about it. And I've had his grandson, Andrew. So people have a, an idea of who and what he was. Marshall McLuhan was often misunderstood. Um, I don't know how well you knew him. I did, I did listen to one of your podcasts where you shared a voicemail from him that I'm assuming you still have, where he, was, he said that he was reading your, your dissertation and he, he wasn't enjoying it very much. Which Hello, Paul. I'm, I'm reading the dissertation. <laughs> I, I was so thrilled to get that. You know, my wife and I were on a brief vacation. I had mailed my dissertation up to McLuhan before I had even defended it, which is when it becomes official. And I was delighted to get that voicemail. And yes, I still have it. I still have the cassette on which it's recorded. That's amazing. That's amazing. I know, obviously, he's influenced you as as a lot of people. And there was a period of time where he kind of fell out of popularity, but he's had a bit of a resurgence, I would say, in the past 10, 12 years. And, and part of that, as I have observed, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it, was it, the things that he was saying which were very applicable and evident to him, maybe not a lot of other people, seem to almost be a, a future telling and prophetic in that it seems more relevant today than it did back in the 60s or 70s when he was talking about it. Because he was talking about us people, human beings being all electrically connected. And he talked about the, he termed the coin, the global village and the medium is the message and how these that will all be connected one day on computers through wires and, and we'll, we'll have this symbiotic relationship. What is your thoughts on, was he just a, a futurist and able to connect dots maybe a little bit better than most? 
Or was he seeing something that was, from your perspective, in plain sight that people were overlooking? A combination of both. Let me first say something about McLuhan's detractors, which I know sounds unkind, but I think it's true. I, I think people who at any time thought McLuhan was worthless, was nonsense, was wasting their and the world's time, were a combination of either not very intelligent, jealous, you know, if they were academics, lazy, because they didn't want to take the time to read and get into McLuhan, those three things, and maybe a combination of all those things. And just to make your this podcast maybe a little controversial, there is a philosopher by the name of Steven Pinker, P-I-N-K-E-R. He was Noam Chomsky's student. He's written some very good books. You know, he, he's a humanist. He appreciated his work. I still do. But I was very unhappy to see that this past summer when Ezra Klein came out with an op-ed, I think it was in the New York Times, in which Klein said, well, he is now taking McLuhan very seriously because he sees the medium is the message because Twitter, again, has become the currency in which political discourse takes place. And McLuhan was completely right about the medium being the message. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But Pinker went on to say, with all due respect to Ezra Klein and Woody Allen and Tom Wolfe, by the way, he tweeted this, he thought McLuhan was worthless. Mm. And, you know, I was, I was really surprised and disappointed to see him say that. And I'm, in fact, writing an article about that. Mm. So, you. you know, that'll be published at some point. But to get to what I think was going on in McLuhan's head, First of all, I've known many people over the years, some of whom I've met, like Karl Popper, who's a British philosopher, whose philosophy I very much like as well. Isaac Asimov, as I mentioned, my favorite science fiction author. But I have to say, McLuhan was far and away the most brilliant, original thinker I have ever met or had the pleasure to read and talk to in my life. And the answer to your question is, in the early 1960s, when McLuhan was writing The Gutenberg Galaxy and then Understanding Media, Telstar was launched. This was the first satellite that was launched that you know flew around the world, and its design was to be used as some kind of telecommunication system. This was a fulfillment of what another science fiction writer, Arthur C. Clarke, had written about in the mid-1940s. And McLuhan was very influenced by Telstar because that's what gave this global village impetus. He realized that it was just a matter of time that there would be many satellites and that people would use it to communicate. And although he, he died in 1980, so the internet technically existed, you know, in the late 1960s as ARPANET, an American military operation, but it certainly didn't become the web as we know it until the mid-1990s. So McLuhan missed that by, you know, a good quarter century. But he realized back then that that's where communication was going. And when everybody else was writing 
and their heads off about current television and this and that, and maybe even making important points. To, and McLuhan did too, but it came naturally to him to read about Telstar and then suddenly spin that into a, where are all these media going? And I once had a conversation with McLuhan. He once said to me, oh, you're interested in evolution. And I said, yeah, I am, because he read my doctoral dissertation. And he said, well, I don't write that much about evolution, he said to me. And I said, are you kidding? Everything you write is about evolution. You may not call it that. By the way, in the same conversation, he said, you know, you're a logic boy. That wasn't a compliment from McLuhan. He said, and, and I've often thought, how is it that you, a logic boy, are able to understand my work so well? So I said, well, tell me. I'm glad you think that. And he said, it's because you're also a musician. And the, so the left brain part of your thinking, the logic part, is always balanced by the right brain, the right side of the brain, which does indeed go to music and creativity. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think we need more of that. And especially in the last few years, I think we're, we're shifting in a part as humans. You can call it evolution. You can call it change, whatever you want to call it, where we're realizing that those soft skills, which is probably not a great name, are becoming more and more important in the workplace and our lives. So I'm really encouraged by that. You know, one of the, you, you mentioned the way that, that he wrote and he said, it's interesting, you said, he said, because you're a musician, you get it. I was talking to Andrew, his grandson, who kind of is the manager of, of the library and, and, and everything, the estate. And, and he has studied personally and, and read and spent time with his father as well, who, who spent a lot of time with Marshall. Uh, so one of the things he said is that the problem is people try to sit down and they try to read McLuhan like they do a textbook. And he said, that's not how my grandfather thought nor wrote. He said, you have to treat it like a piece of prose or like you're reading a poem and you have to read a few lines and you have to sit with it and you have to let it do its work. Because if you try to read it all as a concept and go, I'm going to get this chapter and I'm going to digest it, it comes across a little disjointed. And But that's not what... I don't think McLuhan Marshall was going for that. I think he was trying to probe the brain and trying to get you to think on a different level. And so it makes sense to me when he said, as a musician, you get it because you're thinking in terms of phrasings and deeper concepts and, and music to fit words so that it conveys a feeling or a thought that's much bigger than the definition of a word. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. And probably McLuhan's best known book is Understanding Media, which I think is a wonderful book. That was published in 1964. But in 1962, McLuhan published The Gutenberg Galaxy, which I don't know if I would say it's a better book, but it's certainly equally as important and profound. And the reason as understanding media, and the reason why I'm mentioning that is. What McLuhan did is he, he, his idea of chapters in that book were maybe two, three pages for each chapter. And the title of each 
chapter was usually 15, 20 words long. It was almost like a tweet, by the way. And, you know, he, he, he would just like introduce these profound concepts. That's where he introduced the global village. That he, he introduced the concept about that the alphabet made us into schizophrenics. And let's just stop there. What is he talking about? What does it mean? Yeah. You know, and you can spend the whole night, you can spend the whole month, even a whole year plumbing that, figuring that out, harvesting what engenders. By the way, what he meant was before the alphabet, the speech was directly connected to the person who was speaking. Mm. Once we had a, and, and then hieroglyphics were also trying to be connected to the world because they were stylized pictures. So they looked a little in some way like what they were describing. The whole point of the alphabet is there are a series of abstract letters that don't look like anything, that have arbitrary sounds, and we arbitrarily say they mean this or that when put together. That's what he meant by schizophrenia, that basically there's who we are and what we're feeling, and then once we become an alphabetic society, they, the, the, these ideas are presented in a way that is totally divorced from how we're feeling. Mm. So, so I've just talked for like a minute or two about like a, a phrase in the Gutenberg galaxy. That's exactly what McLuhan was doing and what you were just alluding to. Yeah, yeah. And when you see him speak, and I don't know if he was like this in private, but when he was in public, you know, he was he was quite the media figure for a period of time there. It, it was almost like he was doing this unique performance art mixed with teaching you a deep message. And, and the way I interpret it, it's like he was a jazz player, like he was riffing and he was saying things that made you go. And it was sometimes it was so contradictory and counterintuitive that you're like, whoa, wait a second. What did you what do you mean by that? And then he says it and, and it seems like it makes sense, but he turns it on its head. He looks at it from another way. And then you're left going, OK, I think he was right. That's the way I'll it, give you another example. Once I was having lunch with him, and for some reason, I don't know, a car drove by. He just, like, blurted out. And this was, like, the pleasure of talking to McLuhan. He says, you know, the automobile retrieves the knight in shining armor. Not? <laughs> and I thought about it, and I got exactly what he was saying. Because when, you, especially in the 1960s, you get into, like, a new shiny car, and you drive down the street, and everyone looks at you and admires you. It's indeed like a knight in shining armor. So, yeah. and, and and his mind just teemed with these insights. That's great. That's great. Well, for let's talk about the practicality. Why, in your opinion, as a professor, as a media theorist, why is it so important? Whether it's McLuhan, Postman, your own work, why is it so important? that people think deeply about these things? And why is it important to get these concepts? Well, it's extremely important and it's become even more important in our current world, more important, I think, than it's ever been, although it's always been important. We need to understand media. And again, understanding media, the title of McLuhan's best book, or most best known book, 
But we need to understand media because media do things to us. It's not just an innocent happenstance transaction. Media, by giving us information, by bathing us in information, whether you get it on Twitter, whether you get it on television, whether you get it in, the, in a book, are a constant part of our lives. And therefore, they do things to us which we may or not, not be aware of. And if you look at our current political situation, you know, people are wondering, well, what, what happened? How do we become so divided? You know, McLuhan would have had an answer for it. And I think that's what Ezra Klein was getting at. And, you know, I realized this, and there's a Canadian theorist you might want to have on the show. Andre Mir is his name. I read a really good book that he wrote a couple of years ago called Post-Journalism, The Death of Newspapers. Mm. And but, but the point he made in the book and, and, you know, the point that Klein was talking about and, you know, I began to realize truth itself has been pushed back into not center stage. I mean, it's still there as the goal of communication. And, and here's what Mir and I and McLuhan, if we were alive, would mean by that. Basically, up until social media, anytime anything was communicated about the news, there was a single transcendent goal. Truth. If it was true, yeah, it, it was supposed to be relevant too. Who cares that they put up you know, a new sign on some street corner that, you know, that's not terribly relevant unless you live on that street corner. But the sine qua non, to use that fancy Latin phrase, the, the, the most important essence of what news and journalism was supposed to be is true. Mm. What's now happened with social media is much, much more important than what's true or not, is how many likes and shares something gets. And, and here is where social media has influenced traditional media, this media ecology. That, in effect, is what happened with Fox regarding the 2020 election. The, whether consciously or unconsciously, they, and it was probably conscious for the most part, they made a decision that more important than truth is the number of viewers. Right. And right. They, they didn't want their viewers being poached by some of these even more radical, smaller television operations. So just as on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, likes and shares and retweets have replaced truth, so even in more traditional cable news, number of viewers has replaced truth as the single most important thing. And that's why it's so important that we understand it. None of these things are accidental. And if you look at the attack on the Capitol, you know, in January 2021, that's thoroughly understandable given the fact that without truth as the goal, 
people are getting reports, reading things in social media, mm. seeing things on Fox that says, hey, you know, Dominion basically fixed the election for Biden, and therefore we have to throw out that election. Trump is still president. So good for Dominion for suing Fox. That's exactly what they should do. Unfortunately, they can't sue the evolution of media. And, mm. you know, this is going to continue until some social media systems at least, you know, put a hold on that. I'll add here, Elon Musk is not helping the situation at all. I greatly admire what he's done with SpaceX. I greatly admire what he's done with Tesla. Both of those are very helpful. They're good developments for the human species. But I don't admire what he's done with Twitter. Right. Where he, 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 he said things that are untrue. And again, he thinks it's perfectly fine to say things that are untrue. And that's a problem. Yes, definitely. What do you think McLuhan would say? And more importantly, maybe you would echo him, but I'd love to get your opinion. What would, first of all, what do you think McLuhan would say? And then I want to hear your opinion about chat GPT and generative artificial intelligence. Well, McLuhan, as I said, it was the most creative, intelligent person I've ever had the pleasure of knowing or working with. And I did have several conversations with him about AI and computers, you know, back in the 1960s. They were known then. Obviously, they were mainframe computers. One thing that I'm sure of is McLuhan never thought for a moment that they in any way would equal anything like human intelligence. He, he saw computers and AI for what they were. But if we're talking about this new chat, whatever its letters are, app that can write papers, and by the way, it's so good that it, I, if I understand it correctly, a student could say, I want a 10-page paper on McLuhan written the way Paul Levinson might write such a paper. And then, you know, the, the chatbot would go out and find as many articles and books that I wrote about McLuhan as it could, and it would cleverly put that into a, a paper. Right. So that's, that's an amazing development. I don't know if McLuhan ever foresaw that, but... There are many of my colleagues who are very upset about that. And you know, they say, my God, what is it going to do to, how can I sign pay, you know, student papers? I already came up with a solution to that 10 years ago, that class that you mentioned, digital media and public responsibility. That's known as an eloquentia perfecter class at Fordham University. It's a class that usually seniors and upper level juniors take. And it's the last chance we have to sharpen their communication abilities. That's why it's eloquentia perfecta and, you know, perfecting eloquence. And the two modes that we try to perfect are writing and speaking. So in my classes, anytime a student is assigned writing a paper, part of that assignment is getting up, coming up to the front of the class and talking to the class about the paper, not reading it, talking to the class. 
So there, there are ways to get around that, and but it is an amazing development. And, you know, on one level, it really is no different than a parrot speaking. Sure. You know, art could say something very profound, but it is just something that has to be noted that you could read something. Right. Right. Like Paul Levinson, and I didn't write it, even though maybe it does express my ideas more clearly than I could. There's that possibility also. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about it lately because the idea of generative intelligence and large language models are, you know, at its simplest form is what you said. You can just tell it to give it a this very specific prompt and it will it will fulfill that for you. Not always 100% accurate because it doesn't have a desire nor a way to check necessarily if it's, if, if the, the citations are 100% true, but it can do a pretty close job. Now, where it gets interesting to me is when that same technology is applied to other forms of media. So you can give it a prompt and it will actually create an image. You say, make an image of a cowboy on the moon wearing, you know, a spacesuit on top of a hippopotamus. And it will, it will give you an, a most amazing image of that, right? Um, I've seen it in music. You might find this interesting, but there's some very specific descriptions of goes. Give me a two-minute piece that has elements of reggae and electronic and a three, four beat that, you know, that, that sounds like maybe, you know, Bob Marley meets the police. And all of a sudden you've got this interesting hodgepodge. And when I think of all those things, and I think of a McLuhan-esque model and philosophy where he said that all media is extensions of man, I'm finding generative intelligence and artificial intelligence really hard to, to really quantify what extension it is is it extension of our of our brain or is it extension of what we call the soul like there's this create creative element that's learning and generating and making things those those are where my mind goes do you have any thoughts on that yeah i think those are very profound thoughts and i do think it, it's an extension of our brain mind soul whatever mixture of those you think is going on in in human beings and, you know, part of this, again, is, is evolution. So right. I, I have two record albums out, actually three, but the third one, Spun Dreams, is, is really just a bunch of demos that I recorded over the years. So I have two albums that came out, and they were new productions when they came out. One is Price Upon a Rhyme which came out in the early 1970s. And the other is Welcome Up, Songs of Space and Time, which came out <laughs> in 2020. I, you know, I wanted to slowly build up my audience. So I waited 15 years <laughs> for the second album. But here's the point I'm making. When I recorded the songs in Twice Upon a Rhyme, I had to hit every note right. And if I didn't, I, and, and this was then considered miraculous back then. I usually didn't have to sing the whole song over again. I only had to sing just a couple of lines or words of the song 
and the producer could expertly edit that in by physically cutting the tape in those days. And, you know, we got some pretty good recordings. In 2020, what would happen when I was singing a song and I didn't quite hit the note? He said, oh, it's very easy here. You know, on whatever it is, Fundum Pro, I forget the name. <laughs> I just, uh, suddenly, my God, I'm singing right on key. You know, that line is perfect. So that's not really me at that sense. It is my voice, but that's, now how, that's not how I hit the note when I was singing it. It's how I wanted to hit the note. And that obviously goes back over 20 years, that, you know, and, but it's been perfected. So should we therefore listen askance to recordings in which the pitch has been artificially applied to make every note sound just right? I really don't know. And in a way, you know, what What these, that's a good word for it, what these generative AI programs are doing is they're just taking that to the next step. You know, getting back to the the simple situation of here's a paper that Paul Levinson right. wrote on Loon that I didn't write, but after all was said and done, I was, I was thinking when I was first realizing that could happen, but maybe I did write that. Because if, if the program went out and they harvested all the thoughts, maybe I didn't put that together, but it's taking it from my thoughts. Yes. So maybe I should be flattered. Yeah. Uh, you know, like that, it's a very, very, it's a very controversial thing. I mean, I'll tell you what else, I mean, which fits into this in another way. If you think about collaboration and creative processes, whenever you have more than one person working on something, it's it's never clear who has contributed what, even when they tell you, because you don't even know, you know, someone is writing the music and maybe the person writing the lyrics said, hey, do, hit this note, sings a certain note, puts that in there. The same is also true when two or more people collaborate on a written project. So the reason why I'm mentioning that is the voice of an author has always been not what it quite seems to be. And especially so when there's collaborations. Uh, yeah. And so the AI thing, yes, it makes it vastly more complicated, but I don't think we need to worry, oh my God, you know, I'm never going to read a student paper again. Or, oh my God, you know, music is ruined. Or, oh my God, art is ruined. I'll tell you one last thing. I know a, an, an illustrator. I won't mention his name because I don't, I don't know if you would want this public or not, a very successful illustrator. I mean, he's done things for the U.S. Mint. His illustrations have been converted into the faces of coins and so on. When he does portraits of people, now I thought, you know, naive person I am, okay, he's an artist and illustrator. He sits down, he knows what the person looks like, and he does the portrait. No, he takes a photograph. He has that right in front of him. And he even sometimes paints over the photograph to, to make the painting, not literally on the photograph. The photograph is like in back of a translucent canvas. So is that wrong? No. I mean, so everything is changing. And, you know, this is... Unique. Yeah. 
Yeah, you made me think now that maybe we're learning how to collaborate with machines to come up with something that's different and maybe in a few years even better and more enhanced. But maybe we, like you said about your paper and, and, and in your tone of voice, maybe the student is has the ability to collaborate with you because this machine has extended you and people all over the world can now collaborate with you because of this, 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 this is, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Let me just make the point again. Here we get into deep fake videos. Yeah. Let's, say yes. somebody, let's say someone in the future who can't stand me mm -hmm. has a recording of this podcast interview. And they want me to say things which are precisely the opposite of what I think and what I'm saying. I have no doubt that that probably could be done. They could probably even change sure. the nature of your questions too. That I would vehemently oppose because that's something that's being designed explicitly to deceive. When that's not what the motive is, then... I think we do have to put different standards into it. You know, as a professor, I noticed years ago that Harvard University, where I don't teach, <laughs> has a policy of they consider plagiarism. Listen to this. If a student uses a paper that she or he wrote for another course in a new course. So I remember thinking, and I still feel that way, what? How can you plagiarize yourself? I mean, it's basically a contradiction in terms. And so therefore, I tell my students, hey, you want to repurpose a paper you wrote elsewhere? Good. You know, I don't want you to take somebody else's work. But I mean, that's part of the process, too. I think in the academic world, people, sometimes professors and academics in general, takes too literally and too superficially the creative process. Yes. Yes. That's good. That's really good. Let's bring it, let's, let's land the plane and bring it down to something a little more accessible. And that would be, I know you're a fan of TV and movies. What are you watching these days? What is the series is that you're into and what do you like? Okay. Well, several, first of all, uh, there's not a, currently a new season for all mankind i think that's probably coming up mm. later this year but i as i mentioned earlier i love alternate histories i mean time travel was always and still is my favorite kind of science fiction but there's a natural connection between time travel and alternate history because if you go back in the past and change something that's where the fork in the road is and that's where the alternate history begins so the, the premise for all mankind is that the Soviets just never quite explained why they, they were able to beat us to the moon in yeah. 1969 by just a couple of months, and everything then changes afterwards for all kinds of reasons. Ted Kennedy is elected president. We get involved with the Soviets in a race to Mars. There's also an independent company, apropos what Elon Musk is doing now, so I, I think that is one of the best alternate history stories in any media that's on television. As far as what I'm currently watching, and I have to say this was a surprise to me. For obvious reasons, I'm sick and tired of 
biological, apocalyptic, science fiction, pandemics. I'm sick and tired of it because, first of all, you know, COVID was not science fiction. It was science reality. So I've had enough of that from there. And there have been plenty. And I'm frankly, I, I watched some of The Walking Dead. I liked it to some extent. But after a while, I couldn't take it anymore. It's <laughs> nauseating. So, <laughs> so my wife gave up on it right away. But, but I've had, I had enough of it, pretty much. And the first I realized that I did still have an interest in it, there was a series a year or two ago called, I think, Station 11. Yes. On a, on a novel. I thought that was very good. What I'm leading up to is I think The Last of Us. Yes. Her series. And for a variety of reasons, first of all, the, some of these episodes are so powerful, they would make standalone, you know, yes. movies. You know, there was a, a, an episode a couple of weeks ago, two, two guys who survived the, it's like a fungus attack. I, I think of The Last of Us as the fungus among us. <laughs> and, but they, they live together and they, they, they have a life and th they defy, you know, the expectation that nothing is going to work. There can be <clears throat> no happiness in, in this world. And it's just surprising me, episode after episode, they really are telling powerful human stories. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in a way, that's an alternate history, too, because this, the story takes place pretty much in the present. The fungus attacked us, I don't know, about 13 or 14 years ago. So, so basically, that's when everything changed and we were almost wiped out. So I, I would highly recommend that. Yeah, that's a great show as well. Thank you for that. Well, this has been a pleasure. I'm going to probably dig into your music and probably do an outro at, when I release this of, of some of your songs or one of your songs. So thank you very much for this time. And I appreciate all the work that you're doing. And if people want to get in touch with you or, or, or connect with your work, are, do you have a website that, that you want me to go ahead and announce? I do, but I'll tell you the best thing apropos social media. I'm at Paul Lev. I'm still on Twitter, shooting my mouth off. <laughs> I'm also on two new social media sites. One is called Spoutable. It's okay. called Just Like It Sounds. I'm at Paul Lev there. And another is Mastodon, like the prehistoric element. I'm at Paul Lev there. So any of those three sites, I'm on them every day. Many times a day. By the way, people warned me, the, you know, back in the television days, hey, you're watching too much television. You know, lose your mind. Maybe I did and I'm not aware of it. <laughs> I've also with social media. Stay away from social media. Stop. Uh, you know, I find it to be very invigorating, actually. So th those are the three places you can find me. If you want to get my books, just search on my name on Amazon. You can see all my science fiction novels and nonfiction books. If you want to listen to my music, and thank you for playing some of my songs at the end, or at least one of them, I'm on Spotify, Apple Music, all the various music venues. Well, thank you so much, Paul. And we're, we know that you're not done yet. You have more creativity in you. And so we're going to be keeping our eyes out for books and music in the near future. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll really talk to you soon. Travel to the past to change your mind. Say, so love me.
If I traveled back so fast that the world was blind, could I slip through time? Could I slip by? A paradox that turns the best into the worst can.